Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Crystal, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop update on chronic lymphocytic leukemia, um, or CLL. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer and the CLL. We'll be collaborating with them on this program. And we also have many other, both um, cancer and blood cancer organizations, also um, uh, who have um, who are collaborating with us as well. Um, and um, on the call today, we have over 463 participants. Um, you come from all of the United States, from both rural and urban and suburban areas. And also, we have participants from uh, Canada and the United Kingdom. So we're delighted to have everyone on board today. Um, and today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics. LLC and Janssen Biotech Inc. and I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Um, now we have just wonderful speakers today on our program, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. John Pagel. Dr. Pagel is Chief of Hematology and Malignancies Program, Director Stem Cell Transplantation, Swedish Cancer Institute. And Dr. Pagel will be addressing an overview of CLL, current treatment options, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pagel. Great. Thanks, Carolyn. Nice introduction. I appreciate that. Uh, and it's nice to be with everybody on the call. Um, I'm talking to everybody from Seattle, and we were just chatting before we came on the air about uh, that Seattle hasn't joined the summer season yet. It's uh, around 62 degrees and very cloudy today, so I'm jealous if you're in a warm weather spot uh, I wish I was there. Um, you know, I'm going to give a little bit of overview on CLL, and and I think it's important uh, to continue to remember the big picture about CLL and what that looks like. I say that, of course, in large part for people that are new to this world of CLL, meaning uh, diagnosed with the disease or have a loved one or family member with the disease. So I'll give a somewhat big overview about that. Perhaps you've heard me say those things before or others, but still worth hearing again, I hope. I'll touch a little bit on the treatment options, the current ones, but the most important and exciting things, of course, in CLR are the new and evolving emerging therapies, and Dr. Allen will spend some time on that. And I think uh, uh, wrapping this up with Patty Kaufman's introduction of the CLL Society perhaps will be incredibly valuable for patients to learn about and understand that resource. So it's a nice uh, opportunity for me to be here. Let's spend a, a, a few minutes uh, about the overview and the big world of CLL. You know, re just like you can get a cancer of any part of your body, uh, breast, colon, lung, you can have a cancer of blood cells. Blood just happens to be an organ that's in a liquid form. And most of the time when we get a cancer in a blood cell, it happens in a white blood cell. And most of the time it happens in a white blood cell we call a lymphocyte. And depending on the stage of maturation or maturing of those uh, white blood cells or those lymphocytes, if something goes wrong in those different stages, it'll lead to different diseases. And in particular, one of those in a more mature B cell is called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So, of course, remember these lymphocytes have a normal job to do. Their normal job is primarily to fight infections. But something goes wrong, and these cells behave abnormally. It's, of course, that's what we call cancer. And in a mature lymphocyte, and we call this subtype a B lymphocyte, as in the letter B, those uh, more mature cells can lead to chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And it is, in fact, that, a chronic disease. It's the most common leukemia, but many, many people will be living with this disease despite the fact that we don't diagnose real large numbers of the disease every year. The prevalence of the disease is quite large because, again, people will live with the disease in a chronic way. The lymphocytic part of chronic lymphocytic leukemia has to do with those lymphocytes that I was talking about. And the leukemia just means that this 
is a disease that's circulating in your blood. So CLL is, of course, a what we would call a heterogeneous disease. Not all CLL is made exactly the same. That's important to understand and recognize. And as a physician, when you work with your provider, your patients, and the providing team, it's very important to understand the actual framework of each individual patient's CLL. And that largely has to do with the genetic makeup or any mutations that might be happening in the CLL cell. So we want to, of course, look at those features. And you'll learn, if you haven't already, about the importance of a test called FISH, F-I-S-H. It stands for fluorescence NC2 hybridization, which not really important. But what it does provide us is information on any alterations or changes in key genes or chromosomes, actually, uh, that uh, can give us an information, uh, a large amount of information on prognosis and sometimes actually about the right treatment and how to move forward. So we want to know about high-risk features in particular through the FISH test, and you'll want to ask your doctor about those if you're not familiar with those. Those might be things like a deletion of the short arm of chromosome 17. We call that a 17P deletion. Also, we're recognizing more and more, of course, that there are other features. 11Q deletions are important. And even another test that we're now looking at very uh, commonly, and I would encourage you to also ask your doctor about these features if you have CLL, and that's understanding the mutational status, or what we call status of the of the immunoglobulin heavy, I'm sorry, immunoglobulin heavy chain variable region and its mutational status. It's actually important and good to be a mutant if you can, meaning that these cells have undergone rearrangements and mutational changes that are normal and important. And if the cells have not undergone that process, we call that unmutated. And those are perhaps a little less mature cells and they may behave in a slightly more aggressive way. Having that information really is helpful for prognosis and understanding how patients are going to do, and again, at times, help us figure out the right way to treat a patient. But most importantly, it's uh, important to understand that people with CLL do well, and they do well for long periods of time. And in particular, we don't even treat patients unless we have a good reason to treat people. So it's very common for someone to get diagnosed with CLL, and we just tell them we're going to watch them. And we do that because we don't have a good reason to treat them. And in fact, if we were just going to treat them, we're probably not going to help them live any longer if they don't have a good reason to get treated. We might only be giving them some side effect from treatment that they don't want. And so we just watch and wait until we have a good reason to treat. And that can be a lot of things. That can be things like a rapidly uh, doubling lymphocyte count. Perhaps the spleen gets too big or lymph nodes are growing. You get the idea. There has to be a good reason to get treatment. And people do need treatment. And when you need treatment, it is important to get treatment. Of course, in those settings, it could be important for keeping people healthy. And we do that. We do it successfully. People can get treatment off and on for many years, in fact, perhaps for decades. So that's a, a very common understanding that needs to be recognized that people will eventually need treatment. Not everybody, but the vast majority. They'll get a remission, and that might last for a long time, perhaps years, and then it'll come back. And that off and on might happen over, again, many decades. And most people will live doing that a normal full life and do well. How do people get treated? Well, it's complex, and it's very hard to summarize that on any phone call. We have those individual conversations with each individual patient, of course, but in general, recognize that there's some major classes of therapy that your doctor will be well aware of and you'll want to talk about. Those classes are, in general, uh, chemotherapies. We've used a lot of different chemotherapies over the years. You've probably heard of things like FCR, or fludarabine, cytoxan, and rituxan, perhaps a regimen called bendamustine rituxan, and you get the idea. The other category that's major that we look at are, are small molecule therapies, or what we call targeted agents. And that's really been a game changer for treatment of CLL in the last several years. 
Now we have a lot of oral pills that we call small molecules. They're formulated in a tablet, and you can take them daily and do quite well with very minimal side effects in most cases. So the drugs that are approved there are ibrutinib and another drug called idelalisib. And now we have a listing of an, another agent called acalabrutinib, all commercially available for patients and several on the horizon that are emerging that you're going to hear about from Dr. Allen, I suspect. The point of this, though, is that our goal is to treat people successfully and to keep people healthy and doing well, living a normal life, having positive experiences, whether they have CLL or not. And we're largely able to do that in, again, the vast majority of patients. This has been a huge success story. We need to continue to do better, but we're well on the road to uh, providing patients the best quality of care they can to live a normal, healthy, full, good life. Now, to do that, we have to understand also that there are quality of life concerns, and those are always things that you want to think about and talk about with your doctor as well. It's important to control disease, to, to control the disease, but it's also equally important to feel good and live life, as I've said. So, most people are able to do that without any problems. We're very good at not having patients uh, in the hospital. Infections are usually quite low. We have to recognize that we need to pay close attention to patients, but most people are not going to need blood transfusions. They're going to stay out of the hospital, and they're going to have, hopefully, very infrequent visits to see the doctor. And I would say, is in general, that's a rule. That's how this works. It's not something that anyone wants. We don't like that anybody has CLL, but we're also very positive that we can do good things for patients, and I think you'll hear a lot more about that here from Dr. Allen. I could probably go on and on about treatment options. I just want to give the big picture of understanding that there's lots of options, and in fact, many people might see different the same therapy multiple times. They may have a series of different therapies, perhaps over many years. Lots of them are valuable and people will do well. And I think it's just now starting to touch on the surface of how we can actually improve on outcomes for patients, not just keeping them healthy, but working towards actually really curing this disease. We really are on the precipice of doing that. We're understanding about goals of what we need to achieve and look for in clinical trials. And now we have some really novel, exciting agents such as You've heard of, of course, immunotherapies or CAR T-cells that you might hear more about that have begun to really change the landscape for patients who have CLL. Carolyn, I've talked, I believe, for about 12 minutes or so, and I know that uh, most of what's exciting here is coming from Dr. Allen. So I'm going to go ahead and let you turn it over to him, but I'll be around and available, of course, for questions. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Pickle. That was really wonderful and just to really set the stage for the whole program. So thank you so much. And there will be questions, I'm sure, during the Q&A for you as well. And our next speaker is Dr. John Allen. Dr. Allen is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Wall Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Allen is going to be addressing new and emerging treatment approaches, which we know everyone would like to hear more about, and clinical trial updates. It's really been my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Allen. Hi. Thank you, Carolyn, for, for the invitation to participate in this program, and, and thank you, Dr. Pagel, for that great uh, overview and introduction and kind of setting the, the groundwork for me to, to build on that foundation. Um, I, I want to just echo Dr. Pagel's uh, sentiments that, that, you know, I think we are really living in an exciting time, something that we've not been able to uh, have at our disposal these these really groundbreaking uh, home run kind of drugs uh, that have changed the game of how we are treating and managing our patients and um, you know as as patients it's an exciting time to be able to get access to these drugs uh, and as physicians it's it's great to be able to to uh, provide these drugs and, and see responses and see people's lives change for for the better. Um, and so, you know, we are living in this time where it's actually, you know, the the technology and the information that we're gaining is actually outpacing our ability to kind of gather it all and really know what it all means. And so, um, 
the the field is fast evolving. Uh, we're learning things basically every day, every every few months that you look into PubMed, look into the literature. There's there's new uh, data out there, new drugs, new combinations, new uh, uh, new ideas coming forth of how to, uh, as Dr. Pagel was saying, try to cure this disease. And, and I share those sentiments as well, is that we are very close to doing that. And some, some believe that might be in the very near future that we can uh, gain a potential cure for, for a large number of patients. So I think, you know, kind of how we view the disease right now is, is um, uh, a few different ways. We are using a lot of the information about the CLL to really start to personalize treatments for patients. And um, one of those things that we, that we really, you know, chemoimmunotherapy, the FCR and the bendamustine rituximab, these are still very effective treatments. Uh, they are um, uh, could be very good fits for very specific types of patients, and um, you know we use the data about the CLL to really decide on on who who would be a good fit for that. So, the vast majority of patients who are eligible for chemotherapy uh, based treatments are, are patients who are going to be younger. Typically, that is thought to be 65 years or younger or so, um, and and patients who have good risk disease. Uh, that used to, before we had these novel treatments, we kind of didn't have a choice. We gave every patient uh, chemoimmunotherapy regardless because that's what we had. Well, now that we know really a lot about uh, uh, the genetics of the CLL, uh, as well as now long-term follow-up of how patients have done after chemoimmunotherapy, we really know we can hone down on which patients can do well with that. And so one of the most important things that, you know, as, as many physicians are starting to treat uh, patients, uh, getting that antibody gene, the IGHV mutational status, is very important. And we know that patients who have uh, a mutated status, meaning the good part of this, it's somewhat paradoxical to think that a mutational uh, in any gene is, is a good thing, but in this sense, it's a normal process the cell goes through. And uh, we know that patients with a mutated antibody gene, if they are exposed to chemoimmunotherapy, they can have potentially very long-term remissions with a finite period of treatment. Um, we are also understanding that if you have the unmutated form of the disease, while patients can respond, um, they respond much less so. And, uh, and obviously, while the chemotherapy is very effective, there are downsides, there are toxicities, and there are issues. And so that is one of the first kind of stratifying parts where uh, we, we as physicians look to see what type of disease the patient has. If it's kind of more of a higher risk disease or, or potentially more aggressive appearing, uh, chemoimmunotherapy may not be the best option because now we have relatively long-term follow-up with some of these, as Dr. Pagel was mentioning, the, the small molecule inhibitors. Uh, and showing that those patients can basically, a lot of the poor, quote-unquote, poor prognostic features that were known with CLL kind of are all of a sudden disappearing and doesn't seem to matter so much uh, uh, with these novel agents. And so I think uh, that is one emerging kind of treatment approach how we're looking at patients. We're trying to take the data from their genetics, their mutational status, their cytogenetics, and put all this together in a box to understand whether or not they'll be driving long-term benefit from chemoimmunotherapy. And if we have some of these high-risk features, we start to think about these other types of drugs. Uh, everything has a uh, pro and a con. The pros for chemoimmunotherapy are it's finite period of treatment. It could be very effective, and for these low-risk patients, can potentially have long-term remissions and even maybe even cure. The, we're starting to use that term just with uh, a frontline treatment. Uh, the cons are that it's a very immunosuppressive and um, uh, potentially can have long-term ramifications from the chemoimmunotherapy on the bone marrow for small percentages of patients. Uh, with the novel treatments, uh, of which there's only one approved for frontline treatment, and that is ibrutinib, uh, is very effective. We now have five years of follow-up for a small number of patients that have been followed that long, and the response rates and the durability of disease seems to rival, if not be potentially even better than that. There's been no head-to-head -head comparison. It's 
all against historical controls. And so these are becoming more and more adopted by many physicians out there all across the U.S., not just in academic centers, but even out in the community. And for high-risk patients, these are kind of the go-to first-line type of treatment. Those patients with 17P deletion or deletion 11Q uh, or P53 mutations, these are, these are the patients that are going to benefit most from the novel therapies such as uh, ibrutinin. Um, obviously, they're well tolerated, but they do have side effects. It's not a magic pill. It's not a magic bullet. Uh, uh, but some of the pros are that it's very effective. It's seemingly extraordinarily durable uh, for patients with uh, low-risk disease and um, uh, well tolerated. Now, that uh, there are some downsides is that when we start a patient on these drugs, we kind of continue them going forward uh, uh, persistently, and we don't know how quite to stop. And that takes me on to my, one of my second points. Additionally, there are some side effects such as bleeding and AFib and things like that. Uh, so one of those downsides and how we're trying to address that problem is, one, uh, use combinations of these new treatments uh, in order to try to get patients off of the drug. And so Dr. Pagel had mentioned a drug called venetoclax. Venetoclax is extraordinarily effective, has, has different side effects than the ibrutinib, and also uh, can, uh, can kill off these CLL cells at a much faster rate than ibrutinib does. Ibrutinib kind of stops them from proliferating and slowly kills them off, it doesn't really clear them out rapidly. Uh, venetoclax uh, does the opposite. It kills them very quickly, and it's, you kind of get there uh, uh, at a rapid amount of time, but that's also why that the drug can be potentially dangerous and has to be monitored closely and, and with a physician who knows uh, kind of how to handle the, the medication. But now we are looking towards the future of where we're combining these two drugs in hopes to potentially take the place of chemotherapy. While chemotherapy still has a place uh, in treatment of patients, uh, we are looking to try to supplant that because uh, we might be able to get rid of the toxicities of chemotherapy but have the same efficacy. And the beautiful part of this is that it's very possible we might be able to now uh, instate fixed durations of therapy, sort of like what we do for chemo, where you get six months of treatment, then you're done. And we see what the disease does. And it might go seven, eight years before the disease even relapses, at which point you get treated. So we're now able to potentially achieve that with using combinations such as ibrutinib and venetoclax. And so that's currently a clinical trial. That is not something that can be done uh, uh, on an FDA-approved basis. You can't go to your doctor and necessarily get that unless you're on a clinical trial. But that's sort of where the future is going is using the combinations of these new drugs in order to get deep remissions, stop patients off of the drug, and let them see. And so we, we're still in the infancy of learning on how to do that and how safe that is and how effective that is, but we're starting to get preliminary data that it's, uh, that it's effective. Um, so how long, uh, how long do we need to do it? Can we stop patients? Do we need a maintenance therapy? These are all questions that are kind of at the forefront of the field right now and that we don't know the answers to and probably will start to trickle in over the next four or five years. Um, uh, but, you know, for, for patients that are on the vert, you know, might be okay and they might need, not need treatment for four or five years, this is something that might be coming into play. Uh, for other patients that need treatment now, uh, chemoimmunotherapy, if you're ideal for that, versus uh, ibrutinib. These are kind of the standard of care treatment options and are just as effective and, and, and are very good regimens that you can get access to right now. Um, some of the other things, uh, so that kind of just brings me to some of the clinical trial updates that bring uh, kind of this all into fruition. So we're trying to answer all of these questions, and one of the big answers, one of the big questions that I always hear, which should I do, chemotherapy or these novel agents? And so, you know, I always talk about the risk factors and all of these things and, you know, and, and inform my patients uh, about the, the potential outcomes and things along those lines. Um, but we do have some studies that are currently accruing and are near to being done uh, that will help us as physicians and you as patients really understand what is the best regimen. Uh, so one of those, uh, there's two big studies that are currently being done in the U.S. They fully accrued. They're not really, uh, uh, they haven't reported any results yet, but they've recently accrued. So these are clinical trials, but they're not necessarily going to be uh, open anymore. But as time goes on in the next two to three years, we should start to get some preliminary results from this. And, and two of these big studies are, one is looking at FCR 
versus ibrutinib and rituximab. And can we get away with ibrutinib and rituximab? Is it just the same as FCR? And can we use the low toxicity, uh, uh, well-tolerated drug of ibrutinib and potentially supplant and, and not use chemotherapy? So that, that, that clinical trial will address that, will address is it equivalent, is it better, is it worse? Uh, we, we, think, uh, we think it's probably going to be just as good, uh, if not better, and it will likely be less toxic, but that remains to be seen. Another study for our older patients, if you're older than 65 and you have good risk disease, you can, uh, uh, you might be recommended for bendamustine rituximab. Right now, we don't know if these drugs are better than bendamustine rituximab. So there's another study being done uh, that's looking at bendamustine rituximab versus ibrutinib rituximab versus ibrutinib. Uh, as a monotherapy. Right now, we don't know if rituximab adds anything to ibrutinib, and in fact, there's some data that uh, out there that uh, rituximab does not add really any benefit to ibrutinib. And so in our practice, and I think in many practices, we use monotherapy ibrutinib, and that is the way to go, but this study will definitively prove that. Uh, additionally, there is a study called CLL-13 by the German CLL study group that is currently accruing uh, only in Europe, uh, un unfortunately, for our U.S. patients. But uh, this study is looking at basically chemotherapy versus venetoclax using the, the, uh, another great agent that we have and looking at combinations of venetoclax to whether those are just going to be better uh, than, uh, than chemotherapy. Uh, what we don't, you know, no study has ever looked at novel agents head-to-head. Uh, -head. Uh, there are a few out there uh, that are currently accruing within the same space, but none have been reported. But this study will be one of the first that starts to combine these drugs, these novel agents, in a uh, uh, kind of rational and randomized ma manner and really start to see what is the best combination for patients. Is all is three drugs with a drug called obinutuzumab, uh, venetoclax, and ibrutinib, all three of the drugs, is that the best combination? Is it just two? Can you get away with just two of the drugs? Or will chemotherapy still have a role here? And so these are very, very important studies that are currently being done that we'll, we'll hear about in the future. Um, you know, in terms of some of the exciting data, we just had two major congresses uh, in the past month, basically. One was at ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, uh, and the other one was uh, at EHA, or the European Hematologic Association, their large conference. Um, and at that, there was, few, there was a few studies reported. One of those studies that I previously discussed was the ibrutinib-venetoclax combination showing very high MRD peripheral blood, uh, MRD minimal residual disease rates, meaning we do not see, find CLL in the blood that correlated very highly with bone marrow MRD negativity. Uh, and we know that with chemotherapy, you can get to deep levels of bone marrow MRD negativity, which we know if you can achieve that, you do really well long term. And what we're seeing now is that without using chemotherapy for the first time ever, using two oral pills that seemingly, per the trial, the first you know, 30 patients reported is safe, effective, and well-tolerated and is rivaling some of those rates. So that's going to be an exciting study. That study also looks at how to do fixed duration and stopping the drugs, um, and it's going to be very important for us going forward, obviously, to really understand that, and, and we're going to be following these patients uh, long-term. Uh, and it's also going to address whether we can restart the drugs, let's say, five, six years from now and also get the same responses that we're seeing. So there's a lot of other drugs. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting up to my 15 minutes here, but I think, uh, you know, we can address some of these things in the question and answer period, but there are a lot of drugs out there. There are new drugs on the horizon. Uh, CAR T cells are there for resistant disease if, they, if patients progress on these novel agents. Additionally, there are new molecules, small molecule inhibitors that we are using that we believe can overcome the resistance mechanisms to some of these novel agents. And so we're already kind of on to the second generation of drugs. And so you can see how this is moving very fast, and, and while we're designing studies now, what we want to do in the future may not be necessarily exactly how we wanted the, the study to be designed now. And so really forward-thinking uh, um, uh, physicians are, are needed to, and, and industry to, to come up with the best studies. We need courageous patients uh, like yourselves uh, to, to potentially 
uh, get early access to these drugs and really understand how well uh, they work. And uh, without research and clinical trials, obviously we can't make any of this progress. Uh, and, and really, we, we are living in a truly fortunate time based on all of the hard work of everybody that's come before us. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to you, Carolyn, and we can address some of the other questions about uh, some of these novel therapies uh, and the question and answer period. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Allen. That was really an amazing presentation, very exciting, lots of wonderful news for everybody and information, and I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Patricia Kaufman. She is co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, um, who has really partnered with us to make this program possible, and actually... Um, She's going to say, um, speak about the CL Society's free programs and services. Many of you may know of them already. You may have come onto this program by hearing about it from the CL Society, but I'm going to turn this now over to uh, my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kaufman, who will describe all the resources at the, at the Society that you can access. Hi. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. As Carolyn said, I am Patricia Kaufman, the co-founder and executive director of the CLL Society, we are a nonprofit, and the CLL Society is here to help with a website full of patient-friendly resources. I'm thrilled to be on this call with Drs. Pagel and Allen because they are truly experts in their field, but and I'm thinking that during the course of this call, a lot of ter new terminology has come up and a lot of new ideas that you may not know or understand. And I want you to know that we are your people for an explanation of that. Whether you are newly diagnosed or you have been a CLL patient for a very long time, our learning tools will meet you at any stage in your disease process. We teach, we explain, and we connect. We know that smart patients get smart care, so we've developed tools to make you a smarter patient. How do we do this? Well, as media, we cover all the major hematology conferences where we interview the world's top CLL researchers on cutting-edge advances and treatment options, and we explain what this research means to CLL patients. I'm sure you heard a lot of new terminology this morning. We demystify CLL terminology in our glossary of terms, and we cut the confusion in our sections on acronyms and abbreviations so that you can better understand the language of CLL. Have you ever received lab results from your healthcare provider that you don't know what they mean? Well, compare them to our chart on our website of normal lab values to understand what they mean. And then let us connect you with other CLL patients through our ever-expanding network of CLL-specific support groups across the U.S. We often get feedback after people have come to one of our support group meetings that this was the first time that they had never ever met another CLL patient. So don't deprive yourself of that. Plan to attend one of our many patient educational forums across the country where we gather the best minds in CLL. They will give you an in-depth look at the many facets of CLL treatment. And if you are one of those patients who does not have access to a CLL expert, please come to our website and apply to be considered as a candidate for our free expert access program. We will have over 100 spots available in the coming year. The research that the CLL Society does in survey form becomes your voice informing healthcare providers, researchers, and the pharmaceutical industry as to what CLL patients really want in their treatment. So come along and visit our website to get the best knowledge that strengthens your ability to advocate on your own behalf for the best possible care for your CLL. Don't be a stranger. Get connected. Become informed. We look forward to meeting you. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Coffin. That was really very, very helpful to everybody on the call, um, and what a wonderful resource for everybody. So please, if you haven't already, please take advantage of this wonderful, wonderful resource. And we are going to take questions in about two minutes, so I want you to all think of your questions. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about this resources from Cancer Care, um, and then we will take your questions, um, and, um, and Crystal will explain to you how to do that. So actually, I'm going to say just that Cancer Care is a national organization, and it's really staffed. The services are provided by trained oncology social workers, and many people call our helpline. They call us on the telephone at 1-800-813-4673 um, to access a variety of services, um, whether it be practical and financial assistance or copay financial assistance 
or whether it be to have counseling services or a chance really to talk with one of our staff about your concerns, whether it be your concerns about living with CLL or living with cancer, your concerns about how to talk to your child about your CLL, how to talk to your employer, um, you know, just how to talk to yourself, what to think about. Um, we also offer support groups, both on the telephone and online. And the online support groups, we have about 120 online support groups, and they're actually both for people living with cancers and hematologic cancers, as well as caregivers. And so, um, and all different ages, um, these groups have as well. And for that, you can just access our website at www.cancercare.org, and you can go ahead and register for one of those groups, and one of our oncology social groups will follow up with you, go over with you what the group entails. And the group is um, on a password-protected um, site, and um, actually, um, they have been, that probably is our fastest-growing program. People seem to be very interested. For some people, they're very interesting. Um, to participate in, um, and for support, actually, um, to be with people who share some of your concerns. Um, and in addition to that, and all of those groups are actually monitored and, and facilitated by an oncology social worker. Um, in addition to that, um, we also, of course, do have these workshops, um, which are available to people in the U.S. and internationally, and we also do um, have various publications and, of course, um, uh, the website. So um, with that being said, um, we definitely want you to go ahead and take advantage of those services and uh, access them um, and, uh, and simply a phone call or mouse, mouse click away. So please do that. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Crystal to explain to you how to queue up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question at the very end, I'll give you resources of how to get your questions answered. Um, but Crystal, let's see how many we can take right now. And you'll bring all of our speakers on board. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the star, then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Sue O. Your line is open. Hi. Um, I, um, I've had CLL for 12 years. My oncologist is Dr. Kanti Rai, who I call the CLL guru, and um, I was diagnosed in 2006, and uh, I needed chemo in 2013, and it looks like I may be relapsing, and um, I was advised that I may just need his pills unless it comes back with a vengeance, but what my real concern is is if um, Trump takes away Medicare, how will this affect people with CLL and people with disabilities, how will we get treatment? What will happen to us? So that's an excellent question. Um, and I think um, we first want to address just the medical treatment that you're c concerned about, just in terms of and our, our speakers will address your question in a general way, um, in terms of then we would ask you about your treating healthcare team. And um, at this point in time, Medicare has not been taken away, although that has it, 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 that has not been taken away. So I think we want to talk about what is available to you right now, and then we'll talk about what happens if, if that should happen. So I'm going to ask if Dr. Pagel could just address the treatment, or just in general, so um, our caller can go back to her treating healthcare team, perhaps with some information that she could share um, with them. Yeah, sure, of course. <clears throat> Um, you know, if you are being taken care of by the CLL guru, Conti is a good friend, and you're lucky to have him and be in his care. So I know no matter what I say or anyone says, you're going to get excellent care, and that's important. I think this, though, uh, as Carolyn mentions, is a is a broad subject, and it is true that when people relapse, we sometimes think about different therapies. When you say that you might have been treated, uh, well, a handful of years ago, probably was with chemotherapy or what we call chemoimmunotherapy. Uh, we've already mentioned some of those regimens. Uh, and when people relapse, now we've commonly evolved to getting these oral agents. Uh, and that's probably what you're being referred to. I think those are excellent options for the vast, vast majority of patients. Uh, we've talked about ibrutinib. We've talked about venetoclax. We haven't really talked about a lot of the others uh, that are out there. And in development, and Dr. Rye and many other places have access to clinical trials 
that have lots of novel, important drugs that are uh, really uh, worth considering. So I think you have lots of options. Most people who have long remissions end up doing well with probably most anything that you choose when you need a subsequent treatment. So uh, that's the good news. The, uh, and I and I would say that good news will persist and go on likely for a long time. I don't see these drugs being denied from patients no matter what their insurance issues are. I do think we are in a tough time with the administration and knowing what direction these things might go. But overall, the availability of these drugs in the United States will not go away, assuredly. Uh, and I would uh, not put the, I wouldn't lose any sleep over that at night. I think that these are con continue to be available. What we need to do, of course, is continue to make them more affordable and easier to access for the vast majority of patients. But that's a step forward. I don't see us taking a step back in how we treat patients with CLL. That's the good news, and I hope uh, I hope that you can uh, gain some degree of uh, of optimism there, and know that you're going to be all of us will be well taken care of and able to get the access to care and the drugs that we need when we need them. And if and I think what Dr. Pickles said is so important, and if you find yourself or others find yourselves really that the the payment of the issue is such an uh, excruciatingly painful issue for you, for each of any of you on the call. You know, please tell us, even if it isn't painful, it's just that it's something you think about a lot. You're worried about the future. Please call. I have to say that all of the cancer organizations, both the professional organizations and the nonprofit organizations, um, have really mounted quite a campaign about the need for access to care. Um, and so um, I would definitely recommend that you call. Also, there are resources out there. Um, that exists outside of the um, governmental system that may be available to help as well. So I, I would say, I think as Dr. Pagel said, I think we don't want you to lose sleep over it, but if you are, then you are troubled by it and it is affecting your life, um, I would definitely encourage you to call our staff here. It's free, first of all, or the CLL Society, and really talk to the staff about your concerns. You don't feel like you're doing this all by yourself. And also, you have uh, sounds like you have a wonderful uh, physician of, uh, following you as well, known well to Dr. Pagel, so that's a terrific thing right there. Um, so, um, and, and your health system probably also would want to be reassuring to you as well. So um, we really appreciate your call. I think you represent the voice of many people um, who struggle with these issues, and we just want you to know that there are resources out there for you and people really working very hard um, to keep access to care in this country um, at a premium. That really is very important. So uh, thank you for raising um, the bar of the call and also for raising these issues um, so eloquently. And do others want to add? Um, does um, Dr. Allen or, or Ms. Kaufman, did you want to add anything? Or Yeah, I can just add that, you know, uh, when we put a prescription through, these, you know, these special drugs can only come from about five or six specialty pharmacies in the U.S. These are not drugs that you can go down to your Walgreens and just get kind of a thing. And so, uh, because of that, these specialty pharmacies have uh, are their customer services unparalleled, basically, and um, we work with a few of them closely, and and they actually will look for foundational monies, and there's been a lot of great foundations that actually help with copay assistance and and a lot of these. Um, types of financial issues and and they run the claims and they they look at your um, uh, incomes and things like that and and if you are eligible they do like all of the work for you basically and so uh, you know I've had many patients get access to it and even if that as as our industry partners are sometimes very good at getting drug to patients who are having a hard time doing it um, and so there there is hope out there for that it is a big issue uh, and I think uh, getting um, these drug prices down is an important aspect, uh, but also figuring out a way how to get these drugs as, as finite periods of treatment will be helpful as well because that financial burden of starting a drug in your 60s that you might be on for the next 15, 20 plus years is, you know, uh, that you can potentially reduce down to a year and a half or two or three years total over that same amount of time. That
that that is going to be an important part of this and what we're trying to do as well. But I, I definitely would talk with your physician, your prescribing physician, about which specialty pharmacy they're using and whether or not they have access to some of these foundational copay assistant programs um, and obviously calling cancer care as well as the CLL Society to, to help uh, navigate that system as well it would, is important. And thank you so much. And, and Ms. Kaufman, do you want to add, because I think you're probably hearing these concerns as well. Well, I think I think the question has been well addressed by Drs. Tato and Allen, but I do want to say that um, patients who join support groups often find out from other patients how these issues have been handled well. So speaking with other CLL patients can often be a godsend. Excellent. Thank you. That's very excellent, and, and there are lots of support groups out there, and it's a wonderful resource to hear how others are coping as well. Thank you. Okay, and we have another question from one of our online uh, participants, um, actually, and this one is for Dr. Allen to start with. Um, what is the status of oral agents to deal with abutinib or venetoclax resistance? Yeah, exactly. So that's a great question. You know, I kind of briefly touched upon it. Um, so we know with ibrutinib there are uh, two major ways that patients progress on the drug, true progression and not due to intolerance. And the CLL cells uh, evolve, and they find a way to get around it. And we know for ibrutinib very clearly uh, the major ways that patients progress on these drugs is through developing new mutations in the proteins that ibrutinib inhibits. So ibrutinib is a small molecule that inhibits a protein called Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK. BTK is a major gatekeeper for the B-cell receptor signaling pathway, which is basically the receptor pathway that keeps CLL cells alive and thriving. And basically, when you put the key into the lock and you turn it and you break it off, uh, that protein, that gatekeeper protein, BTK, no longer functions and can no longer signal for the cell to survive and live. Well, after exposure in patients with higher risk CLL, uh, they can develop mutations in that protein that, ought to, uh, that basically kicks ibrutinib out of the pocket that inhibits it and no longer is it able to inhibit the, uh, the protein and, there, and therefore the signaling can start to resume. So one of the issues is ibrutinib is a short-lived drug. Uh, it gets cleared out of the body relatively quickly, and uh, how it works is that it binds irreversibly, like an aspirin to, to uh, the protein that aspirin hits. When it binds, it, it binds covalently, meaning permanently, and shuts down the protein forever. Well, this mutation doesn't allow that to happen, and when you have that mutation form and you have a... Um, uh, a, pro, uh, uh, a medicine that is short-lived in the body, you can see the vast majority of the day that the cell is signaling. And so now uh, we are, are currently, there are phase, in one, phase one first in human studies that are currently accruing. Uh, um, Dr. Pagel and, and uh, my site at Cornell are participating in one of those uh, to where they're using a longer-acting BTK inhibitor that uh, hangs around, is taken twice a day, and uh, basically has, has preclinical evidence that it might be, uh, might be able to overcome some of this resistance. So there is some hope that that is one way that we can reestablish inhibition of BTK, uh, even in the face of having these, uh, these mutations. The other one is if you develop uh, ibrutinib resistance, is that fortunately we know that venetoclax can salvage patients and get high response rates and get, uh, and, and get rid of that clone that is mutated. Um, and so, uh, so we have good evidence for that that's been published, and, and that is, brings up another question on how best to sequence these drugs. Right now, it's kind of widely believed, that, you know, the most common way is to use ibrutinib first and then venetoclax. Well, there was a recent study just published that actually uh, will give, uh, that got venetoclax FDA approval after a prior therapy. So we will, physicians will now be able to use either drug uh, for relapsed patients, and it does, you know, you don't have to have one prior to the other or any specifications like we used to have with venetoclax. You had to have 17P deleted disease only. Uh, so how we sequence these drugs is going to be important. What we know is that venetoclax can salvage ibrutinib patients at very high rates, even if they progressed on the drug. We don't quite know that the vice versa. If you get venetoclax first, how does ibrutinib salvage venetoclax patients who failed? 
we believe it's the same. We, you know, anecdotal evidence, we believe that's the same. There's no reason that it would be any different, but that's a, a question of research that we're trying to understand and sort out, and we will over the next few years. Uh, we also start to understand the resistant mechanisms to venetoclax. Uh, venetoclax uh, inhibits a protein called BCL2. BCL2 is a protein that is upregulated and overexpressed in CLL cells. Uh, this protein, its whole job is to keep the cell alive. And so when you overexpress it, the cell doesn't know how to die and die off, and it ignores all of those signals. So venetoclax binds that, eliminates it from the CLL cell, and the CLL cell then can go on and die. Well, as patients now we are finding, obviously as patients have been on these drugs for even up to years, uh, over time, um, uh, there are resistance mechanisms uh, appearing. While this is different, mutations don't seem to form in the protein BCL2. What happens seemingly is that it starts to upregulate other partner pro-survival uh, uh, pro proteins that are in the same family of drugs but that are not inhibited by venetoclax. And uh, so one of those proteins could be MCL1 or BCLXL. It's all these fancy names that you don't need to worry about, uh, but that they get upregulated. Well, what's exciting is that we are now learning that, and now we are developing rational inhibitors to those, uh, to those other proteins, uh, rational inhibitors to MCL1, rational inhibitors to BCLXL, and all of these types of other uh, proteins, and, and they are now entering phase one studies. Uh, obviously, it's very early. These are first in human. We don't know how it's going to pan out, uh, but it's hopeful that uh, you know, with some fine-tuning and or uh, some success right off the bat uh, that we will then now be able to have these drugs to use for patients who have failed both of these agents. Um, and so the, the future is bright there, and, and we're doing more and more research. And, and obviously, uh, just to, to, to remind everyone, you know, I brewed in the venetoclax. We didn't know how these were going to work out in 2010 in the first in human studies. And, and here we are eight years later talking about how it's changing the world. So, um, you know, there is a lot of hope, and it takes a lot of uh, courageous patients, like I said before, to, to uh, be in a situation where they need help and, and, and to, to uh, take a little bit of a risk and, and try to participate in some of these studies so we can push this forward. But uh, we're working on it, and uh, we're trying to understand that, and we're trying to develop new molecules to, to overcome these resistant mechanisms. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Allen. That was wonderful, and I think, and I think we do have a lot of courageous people on this call. They've signed up to listen to this program, and they, um, so I, what you're saying is so wonderfully helpful. Thank you so much. Um, did anyone add to that? Or it's very comprehensive. So I don't know. But I think John, Dr. Allen did an amazing job. I I think that the important thing that I would walk away from that with, if I were a patient, is to say uh, that. Uh, that what we're doing is makes scientific rational sense. We're actually out working to outsmart the CLL cells as opposed to what we used to do for a long time, which would be perhaps just uh, kill the entire uh, landscape with chemotherapy. So it's an exciting time for researchers, and it provides tremendous promise to patients. Thank you. Thank you. And Ms. Kaufman, did you want to add anything as well? Just anything? Um, I would just say in, in summary that nobody wants a diagnosis of CLL, but there's never been a better time to have CLL as the, the science is progressing so quickly. And at the CLL Society, we're thrilled about that and see it as part of our mission to disseminate information about that. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you do a great job at that, so thank you. Thanks. And um, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, and this one would be for Dr. Pagel. Um, how has treatment for Richter's transformation changed with the evolving treatment landscape? A very important question. So maybe I'll just take a, a second to uh, just remind everybody what Richter transformation is. That is a very rare event that can happen in chronic lymphocytic leukemia, if it does happen, it happens usually in someone who's had the disease for long periods of time and 
perhaps evolved through many treatments. Not always, but that's common. But Richter transformation is uncommon. It doesn't happen uh, frequently. It's important to recognize that. And what this is, is it's a transformation from a what we call an indolent, slow-growing disease, the CLL, to a more aggressive disease. And typically, that more aggressive disease is another kind of lymphoma, and it's most often what we call diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. That uh, is uh, an aggressive disease that needs to be dealt with quickly and efficiently, and we do have a lot of emerging data suggesting that uh, even those highest-risk features of Richter transformation can be dealt with. There's a group of drugs that we've now shown has tremendous promise in specifically patients who have Richter transformation, and that's an immunotherapy class of drugs, which we call PD-L1 or PD-1 inhibitors. You've probably heard about these things in the news. These are drugs that actually stimulate our own immune system cells to fight the cancer, in particular cells that we call T cells. T cells are very important for controlling our health and, in fact, fighting cancer, but they don't always work because our body tricks those T cells into uh, staying dormant or not recognizing the CLL cell or the Richter cell, in this case, as something that they should attack and kill. So now these PD-1 inhibitors or PD-L1 inhibitors, these immunotherapies, they're antibodies can actually take the brakes off of those T cells and block the negative signal that those T cells receive from the malignant cell and thus go ahead and kill those cells. And we've had tremendous success and promise on that. We have a long way to go to make further strides in Richter transformation. But ultimately, we need to be working on Richter transformation patients to get to more uh, definitive treatments. And one of those has been referred to here, that's what we call CAR T-cells, or chimeric antigen receptor T-cells. And that's another way where we trick the patient's own immune system cells, their own T-cells, into recognizing the malignant CLL or Richter transformed cell uh, into something that they should kill. And that's done, again, by introducing into the patient's own specific T-cells a new gene, actually, we call the chimeric gene, that then will express a protein on the surface of those T cells that will attack and kill the the target. It's something that uh, we're gaining tremendous uh, early success with. We've got a long way to go, and in particular, we need to explore the most efficient, expeditious ways to use agents like that for patients with Richter transformation. It is true that Richter transformation remains probably the most difficult situation for us in CLL therapy. Again, I want to stress that it's uncommon. The vast majority of patients will never have this happen to them. But we do have promise, and I think the promise is uh, many of these new drugs and approaches that I've just mentioned. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Allen, do you want to add anything? Very comprehensive. Dr. Pego is always... Yeah, no, that that was great. I think, um, you know, I agree that Richter's transformation is one of the, the greatest unmet needs for our patients with CLL. Um, it remains to be seen that as we use these new drugs kind of earlier and earlier in treatment, uh, whether the rates continue to go down for that small rate of small number of patients. Um, and, and so we're hopeful of that because obviously if you're not using chemotherapy, you possibly avoid uh, adding any more genomic insults into the genome of the CLL, uh, that when it relapses, uh, it's, uh, it's potentially more aggressive. We believe that's a hypothesis. That's completely unclear, but we believe that that's possible. Um, and so I think the other thing is that we, where we're starting to personalize treatment, while, uh, while very few patients with CLL actually uh, transform in their lifetime, there are patients that are at high risk for it. And sometimes we can uh, pick those out with genetic tests and, and things along those lines. And one of the areas of uh, research and intrigue, you know, amongst Dr. Pagel and myself and, and other collaborators is uh, can we identify those patients with those risk factors and potentially treat them earlier with these new drugs before they get to a point where they need treatment and all of these uh, kind of, uh, you know, more advanced disease. Um, while it's a research question, the standard of care is still to observe patients until you have treatment indications. But 
uh, that's just an example of how we are trying to deal with Richter's. We're trying to deal. My my opinion is one of the best ways is just prevent it from happening and and uh, you know prevent genomic insults and and potentially identify patients at risk early on and 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 early treatment with new agents might be able to prevent that and so. Um, that's the that's where we're thinking. That's where I think the field is trying to develop clinical studies and trials. That's a clinical trial question. That's not um, something that you know we we do uh, at, at diagnosis start treating patients. This is something that we need to really think about. But this is where it's going and how we are hoping to to combat this in the future. Um, and so so that's all I really wanted to add there. Excellent. Um, Ms. Kaufman, did you want to add anything as well? Well, I would have to say that it's beyond my area of expertise to comment on, on the medical aspects of, uh, of Richter's transformation. But, um, however, CAR-T therapy was mentioned, and um, many of you may know that I'm Dr. Brian Kaufman's wife, and we've just been through CAR-T therapy, and I'm happy to report that he's MRD negative in his uh, blood and in his bone marrow, and we have a wonderful resource on our um, on our website, a very upbeat comic book called The Amazing Transformation of CAR-T. Please go there and look at it if you are interested in learning more about um, CAR-T uh, therapy. And uh, it's told in an, uh, in an entertaining way from the point of view of a blood cell. Oh, thank you so much. That's, that's very helpful to everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and we have one, uh, this will be probably the last question we're going to take. Um, um, and um, this question for Dr. Allen, um, what do you know, how do you know what your doubling time is? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So this is a, um, a question regarding um, when do we choose to treat a patient, basically. And so the IWCLL, or the International Workshop for CLL, is a uh, biannual um, or every two-year uh, Congress that we get together, all of the CLL experts in the world will present data and research and clinical trials. And they, uh, every few years, in fact, recently, last year, they updated their guidelines um, to, to you know, incorporate the information that we now know with these uh, novel agents. The last one was in 2008. So the IWCLL guidelines really help us as physicians know when to treat a patient. And basically they established these guidelines that Dr. Pagel had mentioned earlier before of, on what are the indications for treatment. Uh, those are essentially fivefold: B symptoms, symptomatic lymph nodes, splenomegaly, um, low blood counts such as a low hemoglobin or a, a platelet count, uh, autoimmune problems, refractory autoimmune problems. And the last one is a doubling time less than six months. And so when we see the, so CLL is not a proliferative disorder. It's not something that you hear of other leukemias that, oh, my God, it's, you know, the white count doubled overnight and it's, you know, 300,000 and it got there, you know, in a week's time. So CLL does not typically do that. It doesn't do that. It, 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 it's a slow-growing disease. But when we see it start to double and we see it proliferative, that, that's a sign that the disease is active, that there may have been another um, event in the CLL that it's kind of uh, turning to, to be active. And it'd be a matter of time before all these other things start to fall into place that you need treatment. And so because of that, that has been an indication for treatment. Now, uh, the doubling time, there's no real great science to it. The guidelines do state that, you know, you really should be bringing a patient back um, several times over the course of a couple months, um, you know, kind of every two weeks to really get a good gauge and a trend uh, that it doubles. It's not something that uh, you, you, you get a count at, month, at three months, uh, you know, in January, and you come back in April, and it went from 60 to 120. Yes, that's concerning, but... That's not, you can't pull the trigger right there on that one. You really do have to come back and really understand what's going on. Additionally, we don't really start the clock on a doubling time until the white count is above 30,000 or so, the lymphocyte count's above 30,000, because you'll see these fluctuations from 15 to 30,000. Well, that doubles, but that doesn't mean you need treatment. That doesn't mean it's, it's active. Sometimes when patients with CLL get an infection or a viral infection, we do sometimes see the white count 
uh, flare up a little bit. And then as soon as you get over the pneumonia or the infection, that, that CLL count starts to come back down to its baseline. And so we really want to see a doubling time, you know, with a higher white blood cell count and really gauge it over time and get a good trend because there are times where you might see a doubling time, the patient feels well completely otherwise, it has no other indications, and you really have to be careful on using the doubling time as the only thing to, to initiate treatment on somebody because, as I said, as we said, these treatments are something when you start, it's kind of like a chronic disease. It's a chronic illness that, you, you know, it's a blood pressure medicine kind of a thing where you take it every day and there's, there, right now, we don't stop them very easily. So it's not... Uh, starting treatment is not something that's taken lightly, and we really have to be sure that the disease is truly active. And, and one of those ways is to do a doubling time, but to really do it uh, properly and correctly, it is to get several time points over that three-month period, you know, every three weeks or so getting a blood count to make sure that there truly is a trend up and that it's not something that just flared and is a one-time thing and it's going to come down and kind of stabilize. Um, and, and that's the other thing is sometimes we do see it pop up and then all of a sudden it plateaus and it stays quiet for another year or two, two years. It, stay, it went from 30 to 50,000. Well, that's a concern. There might be some doubling time there, but all of a sudden it plateaus and it stays at 50,000 for the next two years. And so we do frequently see that as well. Um, so, so that's really why you have to be sure about it and really get serial CBCs to make sure that it, it's truly a trend in active proliferating disease. It really is the art of treatment, isn't it? The science and art of treatment, which it sounds like. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Allen. That's really wonderful. And Dr. does anyone else wish to add anything? Or it's very, very comprehensive and so well done. Yeah, I have to say, um, Dr. Allen's made me look bad here. He's done such a nice job. <laughs> I think everyone's done a wonderful job. It's we, you know, we are just delighted to have such wonderful speakers on our program today. Really, uh, just extraordinary. Um, each complimenting the other. It's been amazing. And I have to say all of the participants. Um, and, and just in wrapping it up, I just I really want to thank everyone for being on the call today. Um, I did say I know there are many more of you in queue, so in terms of getting your questions answered, I just want to say a few words about that um, and then um, and then and wrap it up and wish you all well. But um, in, if anyone has additional medical questions, of course we always want to refer you back to your treating healthcare team. They know you best. They clearly have all their records, but I know many of you do like to go to other sources to get information just to feel more confident in asking your questions or to feel like you have more information when you ask your questions um, because you do have the go-ahead from all of us here to ask questions of your healthcare team. So I, I, in this instance, of course, the CLL Society is really a, a wonderful go-to place for all of you. It just it sounds like they just have wonderful resources. You will be getting an evaluation after today's program, but it's not just an evaluation. It, please hold on to it because it will have all the resources that we've mentioned during the program today, and we may actually come up with others because there were some other questions asked that really um, we want to be sure to have resources to you on those as well. Um, so uh, please um, uh, be aware of the fact that the Sales Society is just a wonderful resource, and you should all have their um, their website. I'm going to give it to you again, but it will be also, of course, on the materials that you'll receive. It's www.clsociety.org. Um, now, in addition to that, for those of you who may have um, more uh, other concerns, um, just in terms of just practical and financial concerns, which did come up during the call today, or who have concerns just in terms of joining a support group, um, um, or, or being or as a caregiver joining the support group as well, or um, feel free to contact Cancer Care, um, and you ha we'll be sending you all that information as well. As we conclude the program today, I would not want anyone to feel that you're alone in dealing with CLL or any type of blood cancer or cancer in general. You're now part of a very large community of support out there. Um, I also just want to mention to you that um, we are doing a program on CAR T cell therapy on Monday, June 25th um, from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. So you'll get information about that, but that might be of interest to some of you just because it's, a, an, it's an interest, it's an, I know there's a great deal of interest in this topic. Um, and again, um, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.